Heavenly Father, thank you for a, a beautiful morning. Lord, thank you for your mercies that we know are new this morning for us and available to us and that you love to lavish upon us. And we are just grateful, grateful for your kindness, for the generosity of your care for us. And Lord, the fact that we can join together this morning and open up our Bibles and look at your word and fix our hearts and our minds on you is a, a true gift that we give thanks for. And as we even reflect a little bit on this last year and the ground that we've been able to cover on various topics and truths from your word, Lord, I pray that they would prove fruitful in conforming us more into the likeness of Christ. Pray that they would stay with us and Lord, that uh, we would be more useful vessels as a result of the, the time spent. Thank you for these men that wake up early and make uh, plans and efforts to, to be here. And Lord, we just pray that you would be honored in this time, uh, that our, our sacrifice and diligence, Lord, would uh, be worshipful to you. And Lord, we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, uh, this is it for the year. This is our last session, and as we talked about earlier in uh, kind of the introduction of EQ, the plan is to have uh, EQ be a, a two-year curriculum that just cycles every two years, so we just keep working through these various topics and issues, and uh, man, it's gone by quick. It's been sweet. Thank you guys for your uh, eagerness to participate and be here and get up early and uh, in the midst of, I, I know, full schedules and lots of obligations and um, commitments. It's, it's been a joy to to be with you men. And we're, uh, we're in discussion about what the summer will look like. We might do some coffee early morning fellowships again like we did last year over the summer. And we'll have information coming on kind of where we land and, and what we decide to do with that. Did everybody get an outline for this morning? Pretty good with that. Perfect. Well, I want to just put in front of us again, in maybe a little bit more succinct fashion, just the purpose of EQ. When we think about equipping men ministry and equipping women ministry at Gilbert Bible Church, what are, what are we going after here? Uh, even as we reflect on the first year and, and what we've gone through, what's the big picture uh, that we're thinking through, that we're aiming at, that would lead us to wake up super early and come and join together and cover various topics. And, and it's this, it's to disciple, equip, and encourage the men and women of Gilbert Bible Church to grow in deeper love for God and obedience to Jesus Christ and faithfulness in their homes and in the body of Christ in order that God might be glorified by the ever-increasing holiness and usefulness of his people. So I'll say it again. And, and we can make this available to you if you'd like it, but it's to disciple, equip, and encourage the men and women of Gilbert Bible Church to grow in deeper love for God and obedience to Jesus Christ and faithfulness in their homes and in the body of Christ in order that God might be glorified by the ever-increasing holiness and usefulness to his people. That's what, that's what we're going after. And so as we've put together the curriculum and thought through what what topics do we want to cover and how do we want to work through them? Well, our, our goal is that we would do this by working through biblical fundamentals of the primary Christian disciplines pertaining to the heart and the home 
and participation in the body of Christ or ministry. We've talked about how that's discipline one, the shepherding of your own heart. Discipline two, faithfulness and shepherding your home, caring for your home. And then discipline three, being faithful in ministry or faithfulness in the local body of Christ, that those are core or key disciplines for the Christian life. And so we've been working through biblical fundamentals of those primary Christian disciplines pertaining to the heart, home, and ministry, as well as covering various key doctrines and Christian practices as prescribed by Scripture. And we had some choices to make as we were thinking through the curriculum. Do we cover each one of those all at once? So for six weeks, we cover heart care. For six weeks, we cover home and kind of go that way. Or thinking through the fact that we may have some joining over the course of two years coming into the ministry, do we do it more in a cyclical fashion? And so I chose the first John approach, which is just circle, circle, circle around various topics and you have these same ideas, but you're, you're revisiting them over and over again over the course of two years. And so that's, that's what we've done. And, and these are foundational and fundamental principles, not as in something that we get through so that we can move on to the better things or the more important things. Rather, they're foundational or fundamental in that they're what the Christian life is built upon. And so if you want to think through your usefulness in the body of Christ, it starts with personal heart care. You'll only be as useful as your own personal holiness. And so thinking through the necessity of bringing our hearts to God's word and shepherding our hearts intentionally and growing in personal godliness, that's absolutely crucial in order that we would actually have something to contribute of value by God's grace through his working in us in the local church and in our homes. Our ability to shepherd our families and care for our families spiritual, spiritually is gonna be directly impacted by our diligence in caring for our own hearts spiritually. And so some of these principles that we've been talking about and even some of the other topics that we've been talking about are, are foundational, they're fundamental. They have to be present in our Christian walk. If you learn the fundamentals of basketball, how to dribble, how to pass, basics of how to shoot, where, p- basics positioning, where to be, you don't move on from that as you grow in your skill. They're always a part of how you engage in the game but you build upon those things and you have to have those things established before you can, can move on. Well, that's similar for the Christian life. And so over the last year, we've covered things like some, some basics of bibliology. We've covered the new man worksheet and what God has done from taking us from an unmixed sinful condition to a mixed condition that we're in now where we are new creations, Uh, We aren't all that we will be one day. We have the capacity, the ability to glorify God, and yet we still have the tendency and propensity to sin. And a day is coming when we will be unmixed yet again, except not unto sin, but into glory. And we talked through that worksheet about God's working in the heart of sinners. We've talked about ecclesiology. What is ecclesiology the study of? Anybody remember? Church, exactly. Ecclesiology, we've talked about the church, we've talked about the attributes of God, we've talked about biblical roles in the home, we've talked about serving in the church and parenting, and we've talked about the promises of God, and that's actually what we're going to be doing this morning is part two of the promises of God. We've talked about Bible reading and prayer and repentance and fighting sin, and last time you were together, Tyler took us through the fear of the Lord. 
And so thinking through these things, I, I know it feels almost like a blink of an eye and we've, we've been a year into this, but think of the ground that we've covered and the content that we've looked at from God's word and the principles that we've gleaned and taken away and think through this first year and how God might use us in light of these things to grow future ministries at Gilbert Bible Church. This is really exciting that we've been able to cover these topics so quickly within the first year and be able to grow alongside of one another in these things, thinking about how God might be used to use how God might be pleased to use these things and use us to further his gospel ministry in the city of Gilbert and beyond for his glory as we continue to grow in these things. And so just first of all, want to praise the Lord and thank him for his kindness to allow us to be able to participate in things like this and to be a part of Gilbert Bible Church together. Thank you guys for participating in the way that you are and want to encourage you all just to keep keep persevering in this. It, it it might have the potential to become uh, a burden to, oh, another week, another thing to do. And to remember that we're, we're moving beyond just any one moment, but we're seeking to grow and to uh, enhance our usefulness and, and our ability to benefit the local body as we grow in true knowledge of our Lord and Savior. So with all that said, uh, any questions, comments? Before we jump into our lesson for this morning, it's kind of sweet to just reflect for a moment. Okay, all right, well, let's jump into our outline for this morning. You should have received it. We're going to talk about discipline one, shepherding our heart with the promises of God. How do we bring to our hearts the truths from scripture of what God has said or committed to or promised? And, and what does it look like to shepherd our hearts with various promises from scripture that God has given to us? And so what I want to do by way of re review is I want to talk a little bit uh, about the promises of God. As we've looked at Philippians recently, uh, just this last week, we know that what we think is crucially, crucial, is critically important for how we live our lives. How we live our lives flows out of our thinking. In fact, what we truly believe will reflect itself in how we live. And so what we believe about God's promises will absolutely have a bearing on how we live. And when we think about God's promises, we want to think through what has God said, to whom has he said it, and what are the implications of this reality on my own heart, on my own thinking, and, and how I navigate this life and the various issues that come to me in this life. We know that we don't always respond perfectly in our natural inclinations. In fact, usually our natural inclinations are against what is appropriate and good and pleasing to God. And so there has to be a directing of the heart, a keeping of the heart, a guarding of the heart, as Proverbs 4.23 says, towards what is pleasing to God, towards what is wise and good and righteous before God. And so what are some things that we must know about God's promises? And this is by way of review. We covered this in uh, lesson seven of semester one. That was the last session of last semester. We covered the promises of God part one. And so just we'll, we'll touch on this briefly, but by way of review, what must we know about God's promises? Well, first and foremost, we must understand that God's promises are trustworthy. 
And God's promises are trustworthy because of the source of those promises. And the source of God's promises is God himself. So when we think about Psalm 1830 that says, as for God, his way is blameless and his word or the word of the Lord is tried. It is, it is true. It is trustworthy. It has been tested and demonstrated trustworthy for God's word to be tried. That's what that means. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Or Numbers 23, 19, that God is not a man that he should lie. It is not in God's character to lie. He does not lie. Nor is it a son of man that he should repent. He doesn't do wrong. He doesn't need to turn from his ways. Has he said, will he not do it? That's a rhetorical question where the answer is obviously he will. If he declares something, if he promises something, if he says he will do it, he will do it. And then the last line of that verse, Numbers twenty three nineteen says, Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Will he not be good on his word? Will he not do what he says? Of, of course he will. God is faithful. And we see this even in the New Testament in Titus 1, verses 1 through 3, where Paul says, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. And so, and then it goes on to say, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation, which was uh, with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. So again, we see this reality that God is trustworthy. He will not lie. He makes good on his word. He does what he says. And so when we think about the promises of God, first and foremost, what we need to recognize is that God is supremely trustworthy. There's just no circumstance, no situation, no environment, no happening in which God is unfaithful to his word. And so if God makes a promise, if God says he will do something, he will be faithful to follow through on that. It's set in stone. It's a done deal. Well, secondly, we must understand that God's promises are purposeful. God has a purpose behind his promises. He didn't just make a bunch of promises that are distant or separate from the believer's life. Any promise that God has made to a New Testament believer has divine intention behind it. And I want you to see this from 2 Peter 1.4. Peter says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lusts. God's divine intention behind his promises that he gives to the New Testament believer is that they would have a sanctifying impact in the believer's life, that we would become partakers of the divine nature. That is, that we would become greater and greater in regards to our personal holiness, that we would be partakers of the divine nature, escaping corruption of world, that is in the world by lust. And so God's promises are for our sanctification. God has given us his promises so that by them we would become more holy in practice. 
Of course, we know positionally before the Lord, we are counted righteous. We are viewed as perfectly holy because we have been given Christ's righteousness, having it credited to our account. And yet for the Christian, there is a ongoing process of sanctification where we become more and more practically holy. And that's what Peter is talking about here. And so God's promises are purposeful. They have the intention from God, divine intention to make you more like Christ to have you be greater and greater partakers of the divine nature in practice, to be more holy before him. Just think about the kindness of the Lord to give to us assurances, divine assurances that he intends to use to aid us in our personal holiness. It's a kind, a kind God that we serve. And then thirdly, God's promises, what must we know about God's promises? Thirdly, they're to be prized. They're to be treasured. And so we, we must recognize that his promises are trustworthy. He is faithful. He has divine intention behind them. They are purposeful that we would be more like Christ, that we would be more holy. And God's promises are to be prized. How could we not prize them? How could we not, when we recognize the surety that comes from them, the intention behind them, from God, how could we not prize these promises? They, they aid us. They have a direct influence on our personal godliness. And for the Christian, that should be our desire, that we would be godly for the sake of glorifying God, uh, that we would be holy for the sake of pleasing him. If we love him, we keep his commandments. And so to be given from the God who loves us, that we now love in return, what enables us to express that love faithfully in obedience is just wonderful and sweet. And so we should prize that. We should prize that. And just listen for a moment of Second Peter 1, what Peter goes on to say after verse 4. He says, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love... For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as you know God's promises, as he uses those to make you more like Christ, you grow in all these wonderful, beautiful ways, and it then renders you neither useless. You find yourself being useful for the Lord. And then verse 9, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So you, if you are not diligent in renewing your mind in the promises of God, growing in personal godliness, you've actually forgotten the very thing that you were saved for. You're short-sighted. You've lost sight of the big picture. Therefore, verse 10, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Uh, we just have to long for God's word this way. We have to desire to have his promises brought to bear on his life so that we might grow so that we might not be short-sighted, so that we understand God's divine intention and purpose in our lives, of course we need to treasure these things. Of course we need to prize these things. Of course we need to persevere in our pursuit of these things. 
Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. And this is an important correlation that in seeking God's word, we are seeking God himself. We're, we're not seeking knowledge about a topic primarily. As if you were to pull out your encyclopedia or Google information and I'm coming to my, to my computer because I want to learn about something. We want to know God's law because we want to know God. We want to know him. And then verse 11, with your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. And remember when we talked about this, that treasuring, the, the Hebrew there is a treasuring like a guarding of a treasure. So he's not talking about treasuring like I treasure it as if it's super valuable. He does talk about that shortly. But he's talking about treasuring it as if it's a, I'm hiding this valuable thing to keep it safe. I have kept safe this, this enormous treasure in my heart. I have treasured it. I've kept it protected so that I may not sin against you. So in this verse, in verse 11, he's not saying I've really loved your word so that I might not sin against you, although he's going to say that in a moment. He's saying here, I've protected or guarded or kept as a treasure your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, verse 12 says, teach me your statutes. Verse 13, with my lips I have told all the ordinances of your mouth. Verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. And here we see the, the loving and the the passion or zeal or treasuring in the sense that we typically would think about treasuring, like, man, I just embrace it and I want it. In verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. So there's the delighting in or rejoicing in it or treasuring in that regard, as much as in all the riches. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Again, we see this prizing of, this delighting in, this love of God's word, God's testimonies. So God's promises for the, for the believer, they are absolutely crucial uh, for the Christian life. They are, to, they are trustworthy, they are purposeful, and they are to be prized. Well, before we jump into God's promises that we're going to look at for the believer this morning, I want to just do a, a little bit of uh, just bullet point reminder of what we've covered in our last time together. Uh, in our last time together, we looked at Romans 8.28 and talked through navigating life's various circumstances, recognizing that all that God does has purpose and intention, and uh, he's good in, in the midst of all of his dealings with us. And so we know that he has purpose for us in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. We looked at Luke 12, 22 through 32, shepherding your heart through anxiety. Uh, we don't have to worry about God's basic provisions for the believer. He provides for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. How much more trustworthy is he to provide for us? 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we talked about uh, escaping various temptations. Philippians 1.6, we talked about the believer's sanctification, that he who started a good work will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And we talked about Philippians 3.20 and 21, and the believer's secured future glorification. And that there is a day coming when we will see Christ, we will be like him, and uh, 
will honor him fully in our practical godliness as well as our positional holiness. Well, we have uh, quite a few that we may or may not work our way through all of them. Some of these we may spend a little bit more time on, but we're going to look at a few more promises from God. And the first one is wisdom from above, and we see that in James 1.5. So go ahead and turn your Bible to James chapter 1. And it's important when we're thinking through the promises of God uh, to ask ourselves a critical question. To whom is this promise made? That is a huge safeguard for us because not every promise in scripture is made for us today. Who can think of, you don't have to have a, a specific passage, but who can think of a promise in scripture that isn't for the New Testament believer? What would be an example of that? Yeah. Yeah. Promises in, in Exodus to whom? Israelites. Great. Yeah. So direct promises of what God or what Yahweh says he will do or be to Israel specifically, even in that time, especially much less promises that he says about the future of Israel and all that he will do for them. Um, Exactly. Promises that he made to Pharaoh about what would come about. Different, different things. So yes, so just simply asking ourselves, just because there's a promise in scripture doesn't mean it's a promise for us. We talked about, uh, what is it, Jeremiah 29, 11. Is that, is that right? Is that the right reference? I know the plans I have for you ones to prosper uh, and so forth. That's God speaking to the nation of Israel through Jeremiah about future plans of restoration for them from the cap impending captivity and judgment that was coming. And uh, we can absolutely learn from God's promises that aren't directly made towards us. We can learn things about God's character, his faithfulness, his trustworthiness. We know from 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, and training, rebuking, and righteousness so the man of God may be adequately equipped, ready for every good deed. So there is a a deepening of knowledge that creates an increased readiness for good deeds before the Lord from every page of scripture. That doesn't mean that every page of scripture or every promise from scripture is intended for us. And so just asking ourselves, to whom is this promise intended is a great safeguard when we're thinking through shepherding our hearts with various promises from scripture. So, First, let's look at James 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. We're going to talk about wisdom from, from above. James says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, so there's a condition here, if you lack wisdom, and the reality is, is that all of us lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. There's the promise. Ask God. The condition is ask God and it will be given to him. But then there's one more condition. And we see that in verse six. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. And so what's the reality that goes on here? It's not simply just ask, God, give me wisdom. I don't know if he'll do it. He's never going to do it. He's never faithful. No, but I asked, so he's going to do it. No, there's conditions. You must ask and you must ask with faith believing that God will grant it. And if you do that, what is the promise? Not a trick question. He'll give it. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. 
Simple in the sense of not complicated. Difficult in the sense of having the humility and contriteness to ask and having the faith to believe that he'll grant it. And so in wisdom, we see the fruit of faith intersecting with the challenges of this world. And when the goal is not primarily escaping from trials, but being faithful in them, we need strength outside of ourselves. That the, that's the context of what James is talking about in James chapter 1, right? James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so there's this reality that when the believer is facing trials, we're to count those things as joy, knowing that God has intention in the midst of trials to make us more like Christ. He talks about knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect or that perfect is a, is a mature. It's like a, a ripened fruit. So like a, a pear that is perfectly ripe, tastes so good and so sweet, it's brought to its intended purpose. That's what perfect means here. It's a maturity or brought to its intended end. And so James says, let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But if you lack wisdom, and what's the contrast here? What would be unwise? Counting trials joy because you're becoming more like Christ. If you lack that understanding, that knowledge, that perspective, ask God and he'll give it to you. He will stabilize you. You won't be a, a double-minded man. And, and God, what does he do? Look at, look at what we see about God in verse 5. He gives to all, so all that fall under this category of asking and asking in faith. He gives generously and without reproach. Just think about that for a moment. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't despise you or condemn you or belittle you. You need wisdom again? Don't you get it? Really? You, you still lack? I gave it to you last time when you experienced this trial. This, tr this next trial is way less than that one, and you need it again? He, he doesn't belittle you. He gives it without reproach. He gives it generously. Have you ever had one of your kids come and ask you a question and maybe your immediate response is, you, you need help with that again? I've shown you five times. <laughs> really? You need help again? Come on, you should know this by now. God is never that way in regards to the wisdom that he loves to give to his children. He doesn't belittle you for needing it. He doesn't condemn you for coming and asking again for just not having it. He gives without reproach. He gives generously. His supply exceeds our need. He fills our cup with wisdom until it's overflowing. You can't contain anymore. He, he does it so generously. There's not a bunch of hoops that you have to jump through to merit it. Simply ask in faith and he will grant you wisdom. He doesn't give it with hesitation. There's no reluctance. There's no reservation. He doesn't rebuke you for not coming to him sooner. Ha, finally, you realized you needed it. All right, here we go. No, that's not God's character at all. He doesn't remind us of how undeserving or unworthy we are. Rather, he lavishes his wisdom upon us. 
And yet, as we said, there's one condition. You have to ask in faith. As you request wisdom from God, you must ask in faith. You must believe that God indeed will grant you the wisdom you desire to be able to respond to your trial in a sanctified, God-honoring way. And so your request must be backed by genuine trust in God's character, in God's purposes, in God's promises. And God calls us to believe in his trustworthiness, to believe that God will give us what we need to be pleasing to him in times of trial, to trust God, looking to his wisdom that will anchor us to the truth of him in the midst of the waves of difficulty. If you ask God in faith, he will grant you, but listen, there are, there are perils of disbelief. If you do not ask in faith, there are consequences. Asking God for wisdom is not one of the option. It's really the only option for us in the midst of difficult circumstances that we would come to him and say, Lord, help me. Give me what I need to honor you. Give me wisdom to be able to navigate this hardship in a way that is pleasing to you. God loves to answer that prayer. He loves to answer that request. What's interesting is the picture that God gives of the one who doubts. That picture for that one is instability. Look at verse 6 through 8. James says, but he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Have you experienced that before? Where you doubted God's faithfulness, you doubted God's trustworthiness. Maybe even in your anxieties of the difficulty of the situation, you doubted that you'd be able to navigate it well. I, there's, this is a lose-lose situation. There's no good that can come from this. And you doubted God. Maybe you didn't even go to him and ask because you were so set in your conclusion that this circumstance was dire. No redeeming qualities. I'm in a rock and a hard place, right? There's no rocks and hard places for the Christian. God will always be faithful and his only requirement is that we ask him for help and believe that he'll give it. And when we do that, he is faithful. And we know the instability that comes, the, the wishy-washiness. Well, man, this decision is before me, this hardship that I'm going through. What do I do? How do I, how do I navigate it? I'm, oh, maybe I should do this. And then you kind of go down that, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that. And you go over and, oh, I'll do this. Maybe I should think this way. And there's just instability there. And our poor families get drugged through the mud of our disbelief. Uh, to be double-minded is literally to be two-souled. Dual souls. <coughs> Sorry. Oh, I tried to find the mute so I wouldn't call. <coughs> now I flipped it the wrong way. When we talk about shepherding your heart, this one is, is absolutely crucial. We talk about shepherding your heart. This one is is not leading their heart. The two-souled man, the double-minded man, they're not leading their heart, but rather they're conducting themselves as if they have two hearts, fighting with one another for supremacy and this instability of the soul. I know I should do this, but I want to do this, and I'm not sure how this will turn out. Maybe I should do this. This instability of the soul leads to an instability of action. They're unstable in all their ways. And God calls us to not be this kind of man. Uh, we must set our minds on the trustworthiness of God, the faithfulness of God. 
And you know what's interesting is James actually tells us later in the book what wisdom is when we're thinking about the wisdom that we're to ask for. But turn over to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 17. James says, But the wisdom from above is first... Here's, here's the characteristics of what wisdom from above is. It's pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. How amazing is that? In the midst of trials and turmoil that were to count as joy as we navigate them, because we know that God is making us more like Christ, when we struggle to find joy in the midst of trials, and when we struggle to find godliness in the midst of that joy that we're to have in the midst of trials, God says he'll grant to us wisdom, and knowing now wisdom from above is actually directly related to our personal character. That we would be pure, pure in conduct, pure in thinking, that we would be peaceable in the midst of it. There wouldn't be an inner turmoil about us in the midst of hardships and trials and difficulties, that we would remain gentle, that there wouldn't be an edge that comes to light in the midst of difficulties. This is a way that I've really had to address my heart over the years uh, as as I've grown is I'm not typically an angry person. I'm not a yeller, but what I find is that when my life gets compressed with obligations, I can find rough edges come, come out in my disposition, and particularly towards my wife and kids. And so they might ask me a question, and I will find myself responding in a way that is intending for them to feel in my response what I'm feeling in my lack of faith of a compressed schedule and obligation. So if I have a lot on my plate and they ask me a question, I'm going to respond, or the temptation is for me to respond in a brief, trite way that communicates to them, I'm working on something and you're interrupting my agenda right now. That's not gentle. That's not peaceable. That's not reasonable. That's not loving. And so God has been kind to help grow me and and help me see this, and there's still much work to be had. But when you think about wisdom from above, it's this wisdom in the midst of life's compressions, in the midst of being in the furnace of trial and hardship, where some of those impurities in our lives have opportunity to most rise to the surface. True wisdom from above creates purity peaceableness, gentleness, reasonableness. You find yourself being full of mercy in the midst of those things. You have good fruits that are produced in the compression and difficulties of life's hardships. You find yourself unwavering towards the Lord, and there's no hypocrisy in your life. How often do we say one thing, and in the heat of the moment, find yourself doing another? True wisdom keeps you from those things. And so wisdom, when we think about wisdom in general, it's having the capacity to understand rightly and live accordingly to life's various circumstances. That's typically what true wisdom is described as. Sophia is to understand 
accurately and respond rightly to life's various issues. Well, when we think about wisdom from above, as James describes it, that all of those things are absolutely fruits of understanding things rightly. You understand there's a sovereign God who's in control of these things, who has purpose behind the different circumstances that are going on in your life, and you know how to respond rightly to life's hardships in holiness, in godliness. And so true wisdom from above ultimately means that in the midst of life's hardships or challenges or difficulties, you can trust that if you come to the Lord believing that he'll give it to you and ask him for his wisdom, he will grant to you perspective and self-control to navigate life's various hardships in a manner that's pleasing to him. How sweet is that? We're never left helpless in the midst of our own propensity to sin against God when things get hard. But God will grant to us wisdom and perspective to navigate various circumstances in a way that's pleasing to him. I think oftentimes when we think about wisdom in life's various trials, we think about how can I make good decisions to get out of the hardship? Or maybe it's not even a hardship, but when we think about wisdom, we think through, hey, um, I'm being offered two different jobs. Which one would be wise for me to take? Should I do this one or this one? And all of a sudden, we might find ourselves spiraling into despair, anxiety, depression, uneasiness, instability, because we want to make the right decision. And I think what we actually see here in regards to biblical wisdom is not necessarily coming out with the best end decision, but being godly in the midst of making decisions. There might be decisions in front of you where you have the freedom to make either one. And more important than which one you choose is how, what kind of man are you going to be in the process of making that decision? Lord, there's... There's two great choices in front of me. Help me to be wise in which decision I make and especially help me to be wise in how I go about making that decision, right? You might get to the same end, but think about a man in the midst of two choices, choosing one because he thinks that will give him the most pleasure versus choosing the same one because he's prayed, he's talked to his wife, He's drawn her out. He's considered the implications on his children. He's thought through work commitment. He's thought through how that work commit impacts social uh, flexibility for involvement in body life, hospitality, other things like that, flexibility of schedule. Maybe he's thought through a whole array. We could probably just brainstorm a hundred redeeming virtuous things to consider in that type of situation. And he's brought those to the Lord and said, I think this serves my wife, is a blessing to my family, honors the Lord, positions me best to be able to serve others and care for others. Um, Think about the difference there versus I'd really like that job better. I find way more personal satisfaction in that job than this other job. Um, I think that's what God's getting at is uh, having our first and foremost concern here be about honoring him in life's various circumstances, whether they're good or challenging. What questions, thoughts, comments do you have on wisdom, wisdom from above?
All right, talkative bunch this morning. We'll keep going. That's probably good because we've got five more and I spent three quarters of our time. All right, we'll move a little bit quicker. Forgiveness and cleansing. Another wonderful promise from the Lord. 1 John 1, 9. Go ahead and turn to 1 John. Just a little bit to the right. 1 John 1, 9. Again, we see a conditional clause. If, so there's a promise of God coming, but there's a condition upon that promise. And it's, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here it is confession to God. If we confess our sins to God, uh, the context here doesn't call for if you confess your sins to one another, then he'll be faithful to forgive you and cleanse you of your unrighteousness. Although we absolutely know elsewhere from James 5, 16, that we are to confess our sins to one another. So this isn't an exclusion of the importance of confessing our sins to one another. That's absolutely important for the believer to do that. In fellowship groups, that's a key part of our intentional interaction with one another is sharing what sin we are fighting, to confess our sin to one another, to share about what that fight looks like and how we can aid one another in uh, repentance from that sin. But here, John is talking about If we confess our sins and if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all of the unrighteousness that comes into our hearts and into our lives from from undealt with sin or from ongoing sin. If we confess that, God is faithful. We, if we agree with God, if we, if we let God know, and listen, we're not confessing because he doesn't know, right? We're not confessing our sins because we did them in secret and God really needs to have the full picture of the kind of person we are. We're not bringing God up to speed on things. He already knows, but we're humbling ourselves in confession by agreeing with him transparently and humbly. And so we confess our sins. We, we tell him, God, we, what you said is unrighteous, I did. I was sinful. I sinned against you. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us. Therefore, we confess our sins to God. God is forgiving. God is cleansing. And this internal confession leads to cleansed living. And of course, we need to remember this promise in light of the rest of 1 John. This promise of him cleansing and forgiving isn't permission, well, then I can just sin and I'll come to him and confess and everything will be good. Because what does John say throughout the rest of 1 John multiple times? No one who knows God, no one who loves God sins. And it's an iterative present. What that means is the nerdy way of saying the tense of the verb in sinning is continually sinning in the same way. So no one who goes on sinning and sinning and sinning in the same way truly loves God. So when we take 1 John as a whole, we can have a huge comfort that, listen, we sin, we're going to sin. If you say you're without sin, you're a liar. But listen, God is faithful. He will forgive you. You can't out-sin God's forgiveness. He will forgive you. And man, how many times have you sinned 
And in your contriteness before the Lord, you knew the filthiness of your sin and you just thought, oh, what a miserable person I am. I am so wicked. God's grace cleanses you of that. You don't have to live with the guilt or under the condemnation of your own filth. Think of it. You know your heart. You know your deeds. You know your sin that you've done in private that maybe nobody else knows about. For the believer who comes to the Lord and confesses that sin, there's forgiveness of that sin and there's cleansing. You don't have to live in your own filth. You've been cleansed. And for the one who truly loves God, there will be repentance. You won't continue on in the same manner without care, sinning as you did before. And we've talked about repentance in previous EQ lessons. Tom took us through a wonderful lesson on that and talked through some of 2 Corinthians 7 and the importance of what biblical repentance looks like. The, the Christian life is not void of sin or void of struggle, but there is a care and there is effort to turn from sin and there is sanctification that comes over time. So God is faithful. Just think about the implications of this. You can come to God when you sin against your children and you speak harshly yet again. Oh, why can't I just speak with self-control to my children? God is faithful. You don't have to live under the condemnation. Uh, you don't have to dwell in filth of your own sin. God cleanses you. Confess that. Agree with God. And then move and press on forward towards righteousness and seek to honor him and turn from that sin. All right, we'll keep going. We're going to keep moving along. If you guys have questions, raise your hand, ask me, interrupt me, any of those things. Uh, otherwise, we will, we will keep plowing through. Give me one second here. Well, it happened. My uh, notes failed me. There we go. Okay. All right. Mercy and grace in the time of need. Hebrews 4, 16. Mercy and grace. Uh, a lot of these promises, what's really compelling, there's promises from God about positional realities for us before him that we're saved, um, that we have his righteousness. There's promises about what's coming for us, future glorification. Many of the promises pertain to God's giving us what we need to overcome sin and temptation today. And that's a lot of what we're looking at this morning. So Hebrews 4, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and particularly in verse 16 is where we see the promise, but I, I want to see how the author of Hebrews sets it up. So Hebrews 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who is that great high priest who's passed through the heavens? Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, 
Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And here, the context, this help and this mercy, this grace in the time of need is mercy and grace when facing temptations. Why do we know that? Because in verse 15, the author of Hebrews is talking about how Jesus was tempted in every way. He's the great high priest, and he provides help in the time of need. And so we can draw near to God. God understands our weakness. He understands our temptations. Jesus understands these things intimately because he withstood temptation, every temptation. He can sympathize in our weaknesses. He's been tempted in all things as we are, yet he was without sin. And I've heard it described this way. It's, it's like a, how is Jesus tempted to the supreme degree? It's like this. If you have a field full of trees and a tornado blows through, ones that are uprooted early on and just taken up in the tornado, they don't even feel the, f- the fullness of the force of the tornado. But the tree that's root is deep and that tornado sits on it and spins, and those winds that are so devastating just keep hammering that, that tree, and it doesn't give up. It's, it's rooted, and it doesn't move, and that wind just keeps going, and eventually it moves on. The tree that was most enduring of the intensity of the wind was the one that never gave in, was never uprooted. Jesus felt the fullest of the intensity of temptation because he never, ever gave in. Not one of us can say that. Each one of us has succumbed. Each human has succumbed to sin's temptation and sinned. Jesus lived his whole life on this earth, never once succumbed to temptation, and he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And so we come to him, we can come close to the throne of grace, understanding that we have a great high priest, Jesus, who knows our weakness. He knows the difficulties. He knows the hardship of the temptation. Uh, God is not some distant being on a cloudly throne barking out commands with unrealistic expectations. God is a holy, infinite, loving, gracious, merciful, God, who sent his son, who understands our weakness and understands the full force and difficulties of life's various temptations, did not sin and is eager to give help in the time of need. When your spouse is away and you're home alone and you have opportunity to look at things you shouldn't online, there is grace and mercy in that time you're never left helpless. There is help in the time of need. And Jesus understands your weaknesses and he understands those temptations. When you've worked a 16-hour day for the third day in a row and you come home and your kids need discipline and you can't even think straight because things are foggy in your head because you're so exhausted and the last thing you want to do is sit down with your child and discipline them in love and grace There is help for you. Jesus understands your weakness. He understands the temptation to be lazy, to be impatient, to be unloving, and he will grant you help. 
If you come to him, come, come to the throne of grace. And you can draw near to the throne of grace, the, the throne that's characterized by grace. And just think about that. It's not a throne for the believer of condemnation. Again, this isn't a throne of reproach. It's a, it's a throne of gracious, generous, benevolent giving of what you need in that time to honor him. All right, we'll do... Uh, We'll do one more. Let's, uh, let's actually jump down to the Christian security. We'll look at John 10. Uh, again, in, in Proverbs 3, we see that we seek him for wisdom and he'll make our ways straight. He will let us know how we should go. That's, a, that's another promise unto godliness of life, moral purity, uh, we see Hebrews 13, 5, that he'll never leave us or forsake us. We're never left alone in our trials or our difficulties or our struggles. God is always close to us. Uh, but here I want to see the Christians. I want you to see the Christian's security. And this is absolutely uh, just astounding when we think about God's care for us and Jesus' care for us. John 10, verse 27, Jesus says this, my sheep, so this is, this is Jesus' discourse on how he is the good shepherd. And he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And that, that's just exclusive. Every single sheep of Jesus, he knows intimately, he knows personally. And they follow me. That's true of the, the genuine believer. And I give eternal life to them. There is salvation for them. And they will never perish. This is an unconditional promise of God. So this one isn't contingent upon you. If you are a sheep, God, Jesus, the good shepherd, knows you and grants to you eternal life and you will never perish. And no one, will snatch them out of my hand. No one will take you out of the good shepherd's care. If you are a genuine believer, you are Christ. Secured, done, end of discussion, closed case. And I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's verse 28. My father who has given them to me is greater than I or is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So as if Jesus, as the good shepherd, as if his security wasn't enough, which of course it is, you are also secured by the Father who will not let you be snatched out of the Son's hand or care. This is the security for every single true Christian, every believer Romans 8, 38 through 39 echoes the same sentiment where Paul says, for I am convinced that neither death, and so he, he's convinced, he's certain, this isn't up for debate, this is what is true, that not death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that can pull you out of God's love. Okay, let's, let's just talk for a moment 
when we think about the Christian security and we think about this promise that God has given through his word to true Christians, what are the implications of this practically on our holiness? What are some of the implications? When you think about your security in Christ with him as your good shepherd, that all whom the father has given, he's lost none is what he says, that they're secured. What are the implications of that in our thinking and our living? What do you guys think? Excellent. Don't fear death. Yeah, how, how we live this life is greatly impacted by what we fear or don't fear. Fearing God, very good. Fearing death, very inhibiting. The courage, what you talk about, to whom you share truth, the things that you value, if you fear death, if you're living for this life alone, your life will be profoundly shallow. If you don't fear death, your life will be profoundly rich. Excellent. What else? Yep. Excellent. Guards us from sorrow over the wrong things. Lord, I sinned. You must not love me anymore. Right? As opposed to finding true... As opposed to finding true sorrow over our sin that leads to a change of behavior, it might lead us to dwell in realms of sorrow of what isn't true. God must not love me. God doesn't care about me anymore. God's abandoned me, right? I'm left helpless. I've got to get myself out of this. These kind of self-focused, self-dependent tendencies that we might find ourselves to have. Um, if we're genuinely Christ, Christ doesn't leave his sheep because they wandered a little bit. He leaves the 99 to go get the one. And to draw them back for those that are truly his. He loves to shepherd us, to care for us. And his rod and his staff, they're a comfort for us. His loving discipline and tender care is a protection for us. All right, we will end there. I'm going to pray and then we can, uh, I think we'll probably just stay in one group and uh, enjoy our discussion time. Heavenly Father, thank you for these promises. Thank you for your intention in them. Thank you for the truth of your word. Help us to be men who know your word, that it would be fresh on our mind so that we would be able to recall these glorious realities about your character and your faithfulness in the midst of, of our fighting for faithfulness in, uh, in this life. Lord, we pray that your word would resonate in our hearts and minds even today as we go about our various obligations that we would be found faithful before you for your glory and lord that all of this would be rooted and grounded in our um, deep love for you oh, we are so grateful for christ we are so grateful for his sacrifice we are so grateful for the forgiveness of sins we're thankful that you would consider us that you would care for us 
that you would be a shepherd to us and help us in response to these things to, to love you with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and that all of the, the godly pursuits and the desire for wisdom from above and the, the desire for faithfulness and doing what is right, that all of these things would be rooted and grounded um, first and foremost and, and really exclusively in a love for Jesus. We pray these things in his